Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In couples where the wife earns more than the husband, both the husband and the wife will lie to make the husband's salary look bigger and the wife's salary look smaller. And I, uh, when I'm coming across this, thinking, what the heck is going on here? And I think one of the things that really most surprised us about all of the research we did was coming to the conclusion that men are in a very narrow lane. Wouldn't this whole reorganizing of what power is and who has access to it and who does what and what we all value, wouldn't actually that benefit men almost as much, if not more, than women? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. One of the foundational themes, whether implicit or explicit, when we think about politics broadly is power. Who has it? Who doesn't? How do they get it? What do they want with it? What do they use it for? What does it do to the people who wield it? But we don't often pause for very long to consider what power even is in the first place and whether our conception of power is actually serving us. On today's episode, we're going to dive deeper into power and how it can increase impact, but also some counterintuitive ideas about power, like how it can keep your ego under control and even lead to joy. We're going to do that with none other than Caddy Kay. Caddy, if you don't know her already, is a veteran of BBC reporting across the globe. She reports on economic and political news across the United States and appears frequently on NBC's Meet the Press and Morning Joe on MSNBC, sometimes with our good friend Susan Del Percio. She has covered four presidential elections, the wars in Kosovo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. She was on the ground at the Pentagon 20 minutes after it was attacked on September 11th. And she's the author, along with Claire Shipman, of four New York Times bestsellers, including Womenomics, Work Less, Achieve More, Live Better, and The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Most recently, though, she and Claire have written a book about the ideas we're discussing today, and it's called The Power Code. More joy, less ego, maximum impact for women and everyone. Caddy, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Politicology. Ron, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So can you begin by sharing a little bit more about uh, your personal background, your professional background, and maybe um, give our listeners if they don't already know and haven't already followed your work, a sense of the set of experiences that uh, led you to examine power in this way? I actually grew up in the Middle East. My father was a British diplomat and I had always assumed I would carry on living outside of the United Kingdom because I spent 18 years of my childhood in dotting all over the Middle East. And then I um, took a job in Zimbabwe, uh, working for an aid agency and thought I would stay in that field. And a friend of mine came out and said, there are so many great stories here and here's a recorder and here's the record button. And this is how you file stories for the BBC. And so I started with the BBC in my mid twenties and carried on through Asia and came to the United States and, and came for three years in, in the nineties and have stayed. Um, and then I, I met Claire Shipman, who is my co-author in about 2006. And we both had young children and we were both at that kind of stage of our careers of thinking, oh my God, we are one nervous breakdown away from quitting with our small kids. And we would have these conversations at on the edge of kind of press conferences in Washington and meetings in the White House um, and say, you know, we just want to be on television less. We want to have more time for our lives. And, and we would take these sort of counterintuitive decisions about our careers. And we thought, you know what, there is a model here because we don't want to quit. We want to carry on working. But the way work is, particularly in the United States, is very difficult to do it. So we wrote our first book, Womenomics, which, which started out as a book on kind of alternative work schedules and how some companies were, in the, were pioneering this, wanting to keep talent in the workforce, but actually became a book about the value of women in the workforce and the, the early stages of the data. And Claire and I are very data-driven. The early stages of the data showing that companies that employ more women at senior levels were making more money. And we realized this was not a PC issue. This was not a diversity issue, even though it's a bottom line issue. And perhaps if you can sell it as a bottom line issue, you actually will have a better reception. Um, so that was our our first book. And and this book, Power, came out of years of writing. Now, Claire and I, this is our fifth book together, writing about women in the workforce and just kind of thinking, well, hold on a second. Why are we still only 10% of CEOs? Why are only 27 of the world's 200-odd countries run by women? Um, and what is it about power? What is it about that very top echelon that seems to be such a hurdle for us. And a bit like we did with confidence, we were looking for a subject that we could really dive into the science and the data and the neuroscience and the psychology. Um, and power just seems to be this stumbling block. I mean, we've, we've stalled pretty much at the top and we wanted to figure out why. Do you want to say a little bit more about Claire? Because it's uh, maybe less common for two people to team up on multiple books as you have done. And since she's not here today, I wonder if you could maybe explain a little bit about how the two of you work together and what she brings to the, to the work as well. Yeah. Shout out to Claire Shipman, who has put up with me through five books. Um, I remember when we wrote our first book and we were friends and a friend actually was a, a, a guy saying to me who had written books, one book with somebody saying, this is a disaster. You should never write a book with a friend. You'll never talk to each other again. It'll, you know, it'll blow your friendship out of the water. We've become closer over the years and now we're on our fifth book together. Let's see if we have a sixth in us. Um, it, she, Claire and I work, uh, we do most of the, the big interviews for any book we do together. 
um, any sort of field trips that we take, we do together. And then we kind of divide up the research because we, we read a lot and we interview a lot of people for our books. And then we kind of write, we, we map it all out and then I'll write one chapter and she'll do two and I'll do three and she'll do four. I mean, we literally kind of divide, divvy it up like that. Um, and then we send the chapters backwards and forwards so that they're smooth. And I don't think you can tell whose voice it is. And we put some of our own stories into them, but, but that's the format. I would say <laughs> in terms of styles, I get things done fast and Claire is more of a perfectionist and that is a pretty good combination. I, we probably drive each other crazy at various points in the process because of those different styles, but I know the book is better because she is my partner and I think she would say the same about me. I would say that probably she would say about the same about me, at least the book gets done because I'm her partner. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And yes, uh, shout out to Claire. That sounds wonderful. It sounds it reminds me of um, the way I work with my producer here. So let's uh, let's dive in here. So you write in the introduction um, that the generally accepted narrative about power, and specifically the story of women in power, is uh, a story humans love, but it's also false. Um, you pose this provocative question right up front: If we have to break glass to get in, is this the right destination in the first place? And I love that question. Can you um, uh, give us a 30,000-foot view of the state of women in power uh, as it stands right now? And I just want to do this in the context of a statistic that stunned me when we spoke with Richard Reeves, who's a Brookings Institution scholar, uh, just a couple of months ago about, um, about the gender gap. And he noted that the gender gap in college degree attainment and in other measures as well has now inverted since the passage of Title IX. But that that the highest echelons uh, of power, especially in corporate America, women still lag. Can you help to put that in context and uh, and tell us what the landscape looks like now? Yes. So as I said, you know, we we started with this frustration that we've stalled at the top, exactly what you've laid out. And we've stalled despite the fact that women are now better educated than men. So we get more degrees, we get more postgraduate degrees, we even get more PhDs than men in the United States. We have all of the competence we have all of the skills that an economy that has shifted from a kind of uh, you know post-industrial muscle economy to a brain economy. We have those skills, right? And we have you know the talent. We we have the qualifications. Um, so why haven't we got to the top? And part of it you can explain because of all of the barriers that we know about the old boys network, um, the persistent biases, the things we write about in the book that are frustrating and that are very much still there. But what interested us was this notion of power itself. Was there something about power and women's understanding of power, women's desire for power, women's relationship with power that was also causing a kind of clash at the top, a clash of styles at the top? And we came to the conclusion that, and this is really the 30,000 foot view of it, that we don't need to remake women. Women are doing everything right. We we are bringing the right skills and qualifications to the demands of today's workforce, particularly to the demands of today's leadership. What we need to do is remake power. And by that, we mean we need to remake our understanding of power. We need to remake who has access to power, how power gets rewarded, who, who, who wields it and how it gets wielded and how it gets valued. And if we can do those things, it could be an awful lot better and more impactful for everybody, actually. And it could produce some movement, I think, at these top levels that 
however many well-meaning kind of diversity and inclusion programs exist just don't seem to be shifting the numbers at the top. So let's look at power and let's look at who has power and how it's wielded. Um, and that could, we believe that could change the numbers. Um, before we flip to this reframing of power, there was one, um, one quote that I really resonated with. And I don't really have a question so much as whether you'd like to expand on it a little bit, because um, I know this is a book for women, uh, women in power, about women in power. But this was the quote that made me feel something. Um, the predominant brand of power demands that we bend, shape, shift, and amputate large chunks of our personal lives, our identity, and our instincts just to keep working, especially if we want to rise through the ranks. This shouldn't be the only path for women or for anyone. And uh, I'm a cisgendered white man. I'm also gay. And I used to work in Republican politics. And I think there's a bit of residue from that experience that I think jumped out at me from that quote. And so I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about, um, I just thought it was beautiful writing uh, and about what you meant by that. I, I love that sentence too. And I think it gets to anyone who has felt at any point in their life, something of an other, um, some form of ex exclusion from uh, the club, right? I mean, the club that's been handed down to us for years by straight white men. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not surprising in some ways that we're struggling. We've got this model that has been around for a long time and now we're trying to disrupt that model. Um, and that's going to take some time. But I think anyone who's ever felt slightly outside and looking in at the club through the kind of grimy windows of it might think, hold on a second, what's going on in there? And do I really, do I really want to be in there if I have to amputate all these other bits of my life? I mean, for me, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty common story. I'm a straight white woman who had kids and I, I felt this constant struggle between wanting to have enough real time to parent my children in the way that I wanted to. And it made me happy, actually. I just wasn't happy if I was doing all of the things I needed to do to be the TV news anchor or whatever it was. I just, I knew I wasn't happy. Um, but I think m bigger than that, what we're positing in a way is something more radical is that this actually would work better for everybody. I mean, everybody. And I mean, all of those straight white, white men who have been in the club because we've interviewed many of them and they're not super happy either. They really aren't. And they are missing out on a huge part of life's richness. I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this, but all of the skills we bring to the table when we nurture our communities and our families and our churches and our companies and our teams and our friendships, all of those skills are the kinds of skills we want in our leaders. So why not change the model? Because if it's not working for anybody, really well. Maybe that, I don't know. I mean, Ron, look around the world. Does it look so great at the moment? Does it look like this model is working so well? Because if it's not, why not think big and think maybe there's something we can change? Yeah. Here, here. Okay. Uh, let's move on to that then. It jumped out to me that women are more likely to be averse to gaining power. Can you explain some of the reasons why that might be the case? The kind of two things that kicked off this idea that power is worth exploring was one, the frustration that we we're not there, right? That we haven't broken through at the top in the way we feel women should do, or people that have not had power yet should do. 
The other thing was this piece of research that came out of Harvard that we found super intriguing, which was that, and actually kicked off our whole redefinition of power and let's remake it, was this research by this associate professor, Alison Wood Brooks, who's spent years exploring gender and power and, and that relationship. And she came across, she did the research that showed that actually maybe women don't want power. And it was such a provocative headline to us because it flies in the face of all the things, all the kind of lean-in experiences that we've had and messages we've been told. And actually what she found was that she she did nine different versions with thousands of people of the same social science study and the results were consistent. It didn't vary much by age. It didn't vary much by seniority. Women were asked to list their life goals and they were asked to list their power goals. And men were asked to do the same in her study. And consistently, the women had a lot more life goals and a lot fewer power goals compared to men. Life goals were things like uh, the amount of time you want to have with your community, the amount of time you want to have your kids, your parents, uh, the amount of time you want to dedicate to exercise, to friendships, to socializing. Power goals are you know, how much, do you want a bigger team? Do you want um, a bigger office? Do you want more responsibility in your hierarchy? And men just have a lot more of them. And so what her theory was that women, for women to get power, they would have to compromise a lot of their life goals. And they're just not prepared to do that. So they look at all the things they would have to give up and the cost is too high because they have more of those life, life goals. They have more, they have a broader range of values. We have a broader set of things we want to do and a broader set of values and things that are valuable to us compared to men. And um, so the cost, she found the cost of getting it is too high. We have to make too many compromises on all of those other things that we value. And also that power itself just isn't very appealing. I mean, that's the ego side of our subtitle is that power itself, just we look at it and we think, well, actually, you know what? breaking that glass ceiling. I mean, look what we have to deal with when we get there. We've spoken to very powerful women who have said to us, you know, as I was coming up, I looked up and I thought, ugh, doesn't look so great. Um, and that's, so that's where the power aversion theory comes in. Yeah. If that's what power is, I don't really want that, or at least that version of it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's talk about what power is then, how you are thinking about it differently, maybe outline the differences between uh, framing power as power over versus power to. Yeah. So that if think about it, all the definitions of power that have come to us through history are, are pretty simple. I mean, it's, you have power over resources, you have power over people. You can make people do things they don't necessarily want to do. And that's the kind of historical, go through all the philosophers and historians and people, sociologists who've written about power. And that is generally the version of power that has come down to us. And I think most people understand it. It's a fairly clear, straightforward definition. One guy, uh, David Winter, a professor, emeritus professor at Michigan, described it. I have power over this coffee cup because I can move it from here to here. Um, and I have power over you because I can make you do something. But then actually, as the field of study of power, and we interviewed most of the academics who are kind of studying power in the United States um, 
and in the UK as well. As that field is starting to be populated by women, actually there's a kind of broader definition of power that is emerging. And that is the idea of power to do things, power as as having impact, the, the why of power, focusing on the results of power. And it was Laura Cray, who's a professor at Berkeley, who really came you know, came up with this idea for us was that actually this is a definition that women tend to, um, that this is a definition women tend to have more of power, that women tend to focus on the why of power, power to rather than power over. And I think that what we, why the reason, and we kind of thought, okay, well, we'll get into, as we did with confidence, we'll define power and then we'll move on. But actually in defining power and in understanding this distinction between how men and women relate to power, that actually set up the framework for this idea of remaking power. Because power to do things, power where you focus on the outcome, on the impact, on the why, is actually a really effective form of power. I mean, that's that's power stripped of the ego and just focusing on the impact. Purpose. Purpose, yeah. And results. I mean, actually, not just purpose, but results, right? What any corporate hierarchy ought to value. Not for the wielding of it, but for the way you can change the world for the better. I think that's a Carly Fiorina quote, something like that. Uh, this is interesting to me because as I was reading, I kept thinking about uh, my 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 old boss, Carly Fiorina, and the way she talked about power was to um, leadership, I should say, is to change the change the order of things for the better. But it was very much a servant leadership style uh, approach. And there's a lot in the way you write that echoed that uh, posture, I think, toward power. Um, I don't know if that was part of your, if you, if that was part of your thinking at all, but it, it seems very compatible with, um, with the approach you're taking. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I want to say that this is not, we didn't kind of come up with this in an academic lab. We wanted to check that this works. I mean, we're not utopian about this. We're not saying strip it all down and let's all you know, play together in the garden and make daisy chains and and have no power structures. So we we did kind of road test this and we wanted to talk to women who have power. We we went around the world and interviewed women who have power. And it's amazing how much those women, perhaps even without being conscious about it, are are wielding power in this way. They are they are on the ground and in real time redefining how power is used without perhaps even being aware of it. Um, although most of them did say they felt women used power differently. I mean, they were conscious that women used power differently. They probably hadn't framed it in this power to versus power over way. But certainly the women leaders, and we chose, we interviewed lots of them, but we chose four to profile in the book, particularly who we thought were bringing a specific aspect of this new type of definition of power into reality. Okay, so how does that framing of power then as power to change the way women value gaining power, the way they see uh, pursuing it? Well, I think then then you can get a little bit into our subtitle, and you were kind enough to mention that earlier. Um, and we spent a long time debating this subtitle, and particularly the use of the word joy, because I think a lot of people don't look at power and think, joy that, and we're not talking joy kind of scented candles and walks on the beach, although right. those are nice too. <laughs> um, this is a sort of the kind of profound joy that we found in the women leaders we profiled who were using power in a way that gave them joy, that gave them that deep satisfaction that comes with knowing they are making people's lives better, whether it's, you know, uh, the woman, the parliamentarian we interviewed in Senegal 
And I asked her what power meant to her. And she said, power is the ability to get electricity into a rural clinic so that a midwife can give birth with a little bit of electric light. I mean, that is power as a tool, right? That is power stripped of ego. It was not about her. She was not doing it to make money for herself. She was not doing it to be part of a network um, or have, you know, grandiose views. She was doing it so that a midwife could have an electric light bulb to help a woman give birth. I mean, talk about power too. I mean, how, how much more? And that is, and there's a wonderful, I think that when you, when I think any person, and I don't think this is about women, I think any person offered that opportunity, offered that possibility to make an impact. How, I mean, you know, kind of almost makes me kind of brings tears to my, I mean, that is, that is incredibly joyful. I mean, what a great way to think of power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk about the correlation between having power and rates of depression in in women versus men? Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? Um, this was research we found from the University of Texas, um, a professor who has found that women who get to senior leadership positions are more prone to feeling depression than men who get to senior leadership positions. Now, women tend to be more prone to depression or at least um, express that they are more prone to depression than men, but the the rates were that much higher in leadership positions. And her theory was that uh, what happens is that women get into leadership and there is this, that's where the clash happens, right? They get into leadership. They've given up a lot of their values to get there. Um, and then they get there and they are expected to wield power in the way that power has always been wielded, you know, power over people, um, you know, the person that speaks loudest and longest, um, very hierarchical, very kind of zero sum gain, you know, more power for you, Ron is less for me. Um, and, and that clash doesn't really work. And I, we've, I remember speaking to a very senior European, um, central banker who said to me, um, you know, she was running, she was, I, she was being asked whether she was going to run for a very serious senior position in the European commission. She said to me, no, because I would just have to deal with all of those egos if I got there. And I think that's the reality that a, women, a, lot of, a lot of women face. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, of course, you get there and you're, it's lonely because there aren't very many women around you. And so the models of how you can behave are limited. Men, when they look up, you know, there's lots and lots of men in power. And so you can be lots of different people. You can be Ron or you could be David or you could be Bruce or you could be, you know, uh, Simon. But you get to the top of, very top as a woman and you can really only be Anne or Sarah. And so I think that that thing of limited role models and the loneliness, and then you're expected, you know, you're called a bitch or you're called too assertive or, you know, you're too aggressive or all the, you don't, your meet, dress is critiqued by, your dress is yeah. critiqued. You're not wearing the right pantsuit or whatever it is, yeah. or you're, right. or you're asked, why aren't you at home with your children? You know, how can you, how can you be CEO of this company and have kids? You know, that's that kind of question or run for president and have kids. Are you sure you should, must mean you're not a good mother. So I think all of those things make it hard. Yeah. What about the relationship between power and status? Yeah, that we looked at, we, we sort of, as we got kind of geeked out a little bit on what power was, we kind of tried to deconstruct it a bit. Um, and power and status and respect are all sort of forms of power. Respect and status are often seen as kind of lesser cousins, I think, of power is the big, you know, the big dog and, and respect and status are sort of softer versions of it. But actually what we found is that status matters a lot to women. Um, 
its status implies managing up, but also managing down. You have status in society because you have respect of people below you as well as people above you. And I think for women, actually, status is a very important part of having power. I think actually, hopefully for everybody, status should be a very important part of having power because the implication is that you get to the top, but you carry those people below. You retain your empathy and connection to those people below you. So that's slightly the difference between power and status. And I think increasingly, I mean, I actually think in in the world we are in, which is less hierarchical, more global communication, a flatter management um, model then status is an import, a very important part of power and needs to be for everybody. I want to, there's one, I'm going to skip ahead here, but since we're on this topic about status, I wonder if, if we mentioned the subheading, there's uh, a couple, this is one of the things that sound maybe contradictory uh, to people or, or counterintuitive anyway, getting power leading to less ego. And as we're talking about status, can you explain how framing power the way you have can, can help keep your ego in check? And the difference between um, uh, a value of status in the way you just described and an inflated ego that comes with um, power. I'm going to do that through an example because I think that's kind of the most useful. Um, and go back to some of the, one of the women we profile, and that's Danny Minton Beddoes, who's the first female editor of the Economist magazine. Um, and when we we interviewed Danny, who full disclosure I know and have known for years, but I've heard her talk about power and leadership over the years. And one of the things that intrigued me was the degree to which she almost sees herself as a custodian of the role. It's, it's not, it's, she is trying to do her best for that role and for the magazine and the people in the magazine. It's not about her. I mean, she, and, and she's always talking about the satisfaction that she gets from her job is when everybody in the magazine feels they are managing to do the best job they can. Um, and it is, again, and, and the ways that she has actually changed The Economist since coming in as editor, again, you know, the first female editor, she's done specific things. And that's what interested us. You know, like she's changed the meeting structure to make it flatter because she realized they had these rather kind of intimidating Monday meetings and all of the kind of most important people sat in the very front row and the less important people were shoved out in the corridor. And so she changed it all, just literally changed the format of the room to make it less hierarchical. So she had a concept of what she wanted to do with power which was empower other people in the magazine. And she actually changed the structure of the magazine to do that. Um, and she is somebody who is, all, she, I mean, she says, you know, first of all, handing out credit to everybody else as opposed to taking it to yourself is an amazing motivator. It's a, it's a great leadership tool. I mean, you know, try it. It motivates people. There's nothing like people feeling that they are valued. But I think the difference is you have to be authentic. If you're just doing it as a tool, it doesn't work. And pe- we're, we're all big bullshit spotters. We can tell that a mile off. But for her, the satisfaction, the joy element of power really does come from knowing that, you know, whether it's the you know producer on a podcast or the, the stringer out in Kazakhstan feels they are managing to do their best work. And that's, that's the joy she gets from power. It's empowering other people. Yeah, it also happens to be a truth that is rarely expressed, and and I find that when when truths are expressed authentically, they have power in and of themselves. And I think that's one thing leaders don't typically, many leaders don't typically do. And and uh, yeah, uh, I want to go back to this um, power to versus power over, and um, ask you how can leaders who have power 
reckon when they see their power as power to and the people they lead see it as power over. Because there seems to be a conflict here, right? For example, one person's um, power to make a more inclusive workspace might uh, fairly be interpreted as power over what I'm allowed to say in the workplace. Um, And so I'd love for you to speak to that. And if you feel like expanding, um, perhaps about how that understanding can shape our political discourse. Wow. That's a good question. And I hadn't really thought of it. So I'm kind of thinking of this on the fly. I think a lot of it is about bringing people with you. Let me think of, I'm going to go to another example, which is St. Marshall, who is the first black female head of an NBA team. She's the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. And she talks about bringing your whole self to work. And I think there is a relationship with that and what you're saying, which is explanation, which is the more you understand the people you work, who work for you or work in your team, and the more you are aware of all of the issues they are bringing from their personal lives into the workplace, the easier it is to navigate complicated um, and potentially stressful circumstances for your organization. So Sint talks about how she, when she joined the Dallas Mavericks, first of all, she had a conversation with every single person that worked for the Dallas Mavericks, every single person she spent time with face-to-face. And she has this lovely image about how people who leave home in the morning don't pop into a phone booth and put on a super cape and turn up at work 10 minutes later, the person who gets out of bed and leaves home is the same person that comes to work. And the more you as an organization know who that person is that leaves home, the better your organization is going to be able to handle things like somebody thinking I'm being, you know, told I can't talk about things, um, as opposed to thinking this is a more inclusive work environment, because you are understanding where people come from in their personal lives. And they then feel they are heard and seen and listened to, and they are heard and seen. And I think that is what is critical for leaders. They are heard and seen and listened to. This is not pro forma. Um, This is actually realizing that if you can embrace the idea that your employees and associates' personal lives are an asset, not a liability, your organization will be able to withstand difficult moments. So Sint gave the example of, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, that because they had built a community in which people's personal lives were valued and recognized and spoken about, when something happened like that, that was potentially rocked, which did rock, as we know, many work organizations, she felt that the Dallas Mavericks was in a really strong position because people had brought their issues already. They were already heard. Nobody felt marginalized. It does. It's an echo. It's it's an echo of the beautiful quote I read from the beginning, from the introduction about amputating, bending, shifting, amputating parts of your personal self when you come to the workplace. And if you bring your wholeness and your fullness to the works to the workplace, that is an asset. And leaders who are able to recognize that as an asset can get um, can move the bottom line. <laughs> can can actually produce results uh, output. That exceed. Well, that's the more impact, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about 
let's talk about your brain on power. I love, uh, I, I love brain research. Um, my sister's a, a, a neurologist and we talk about psychology a lot on the, on the show. Um, can you talk about how having power impacts behavior? And specifically, I found the part about um, how having power changes table manners. Uh, quite interesting. <laughs> so this, this is an old um, study, and it's, it's a well-known study. We weren't breaking yeah. new ground when we came across the Cookie Monster study um, by Dasha Keltner, who had done this study years ago where he would get uh, three people in a group um, to do a, a boring writing assignment. And halfway through the writing assignment, he would bring in a plate of four cookies. And every, and he, he would assign one person in that three-person group, the leader, the nominal random leader. Ron, you're the leader of this group. And you're going to do this boring writing assignment. And he walks in and he brings them halfway through a plate of four chocolate chip cookies. And everybody takes a chocolate chip cookie. And there's one left over. And time and again, the person who takes the last chocolate chip cookie is the person who has been randomly assigned the leader. And his conclusion from this was that a little bit along those lines of power corrupts and power gives people a sense of entitlement and boosts their ego and their self-importance. And it was the person who took the cookie, the extra cookie, who felt that they were the boss, therefore they could have the extra chocolate chip cookie. And then he also found that when the leader was a man, their table manners deteriorated as well. And they would eat with their mouth open and crumbs would fall down there onto their shirts. And it was this, this notion that, I mean, it's kind of stereotypical, but it's this notion, he found this from his research, uh, he's at UC Berkeley, that power does this thing to people that makes them more unpleasant and, and messier and ruder. And he's then done that with cars and you give people, do people who drive fancy cars give less rights of way to people who drive cheaper cars. And, and yes, they do. The kind of driving a fancy car makes you suddenly feel that you're allowed to run over pedestrians or, you know, run a red light. And if you're in a Honda Civic, you don't feel that way. So that was, that was a kind of fun way to start the classic exploration of our brains on power. But there is actually now a lot more, more recent and very interesting neuroscience on power. Dacher Keltner is a social science, a psychology professor, but we were very interested in actually what does power do to your brain um, and the extent to which that's being, being monitored. And it's, it's in its infancy, it's kind of new, the whole study of neuroscience and power, but it is, it is fascinating. Uh, any key takeaways uh, from the neuroscience and power? So the, the, the interesting stuff that's being done is by a guy called um, Obi, Professor Obi up in Canada, and he has done what's called priming people for power. So when you prime somebody for power, you make them remember a time when they felt they had power um, and that, so they're, they're, they're feeling powerful. And then you stick a whole load of electrodes on their brain and you watch what happens to somebody's brain. And he found that the people who were primed for power what's called the behavioral activation system of the brain lit up. Um, and people who were primed to be powerless, um, so were going into this experiment feeling less power, uh, their behavioral activation system shut down, uh, dialed down. And his conclusion, Obi's conclusion, is that power, m power activates us. Power makes people take action. Um, and feeling powerless makes people more timid um, and more restrained 
and less active. And so the, the kind of interesting conclusion from that is that people with power are probably going to succeed at what they want to do because they will act more than people who do not have power, which is another argument for making sure that the people who have power are the right people. Yeah. And feel empowered. I'm, I'm bookmarking for myself uh, a conversation about this with a cultural psychologist because I'd love to drill, drill into that at a, at a population level. At a, you know, we're talking about specific um, leadership roles, but I'd love to know how a cultural psych- psychologist would think about that. At a, the one other yeah. thing that power does is that, uh, and this was from um, a professor in Switzerland that we found some research in Switzerland, is that um, power actually allows us to be more authentic. And I thought that was really interesting. And again, you know, if we're trying to kind of rebrand power to make it more appealing to people that haven't had it or that might shy away from it or find the whole thing kind of repellent, the idea that power lets us be more authentic, more ourselves, I think is that for people who have done what we talked about, you know, shape-shifted and contorted themselves and amputated themselves over generations to try and get power, that's a very appealing prospect because who doesn't want more of the power to be authentic in their lives? Yes. Yeah. I think the way you put it in the book is power is like salt. It makes you more you something. It makes you act more like yeah. you something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, and it, and it, and it raises a, uh, a point I wanted to put to you and, and see how you're thinking about it because there's this old saying probably much everyone has heard, which is that power corrupts. Right. And it comes from that particular one comes from a famous quote that goes like this power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. The rest of the quote is, great men are almost always bad men. And it's often um, misattributed to the last president of Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, but in fact, it was um, Lord John Acton, for that quote, writing in a letter to a Church of England bishop. And the bishop believed powerful people should be judged by different standards because of the burden of their responsibilities uh, and office. And Lord Acton was making the case that all individuals, regardless of power or position, uh, should be held to the same moral standards. And crucially, he believed that as one's power increased, the temptation to misuse it or abuse it also increased proportionately. So the question is, was he right? Was he wrong? How does that idea hold up um, as you're doing research for this book? Congratulations. That was a nice deep dive on Lord Acton. Um, <laughs> What Dacca Keltner's Cookie Monster study would suggest he's right, right? That Acton's right. Um, and that in a very minor, funny way, he showed the same thing, the power corrupted. I think the second part of Acton's comment about great men are nearly always bad men. Now he was writing in 1887, so there weren't very many great women to choose from. But um, I think that was intriguing to us. And the only, uh, we did we did do some digging into this and we found some research. It was a big um, Fortune 500 study, a study of Fortune 500 companies that suggested that actually power does not corrupt women in the same way that it has traditionally corrupted men. And maybe it's what you were talking about earlier, this, the value that women place on status and respect. But the study was done on DNI initiatives and it showed that as men, they took male uh, men over the over the kind of series of years and and ranks, and they found that men who started out kind of in the middle ranks of a company um, questioned about DNI initiatives would see that their company was lacking diversity and lacking inclusion. But those same men, when they got to the top of the company, 
started to have a much rosier tinted view of the company and would say, oh no, our company is great. Our, co- our company is is diverse and inclusive enough and and I'm at the top and and everything looks rosy from where I am. Women in the same study didn't have that kind of vault fast on what they thought about their company's um, efforts on diversity inclusion. In fact, they would get to the very top and have exactly the same view of the problems in their company in terms of diversity and inclusion than they did when, uh, that they had had when they were middle managers. And the, the sort of the, the study was positing that actually women who get to the top retain empathy and connection with people lower down and people excluded from power much more than men do. Now, I don't know if you could say from that right across the board that that suggests that Lord Acton was wrong, but I think there's something very interesting in that in terms of who has power and and if you retain empathy and connection, it also suggests you're going to be less corrupted by power. There's also been research from Bocconi University in, in Milan in Italy, um, which was super interesting, which actually shows that women leaders around the world are up to 80% less likely to be charged with corruption than men. So basically women in positions of leadership are much less likely than men in positions of leadership to be charged with corruption. So actually, yes, there is less corruption. Mexico had a real problem with corruption. It's police forces and one region of Mexico decided, right, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to make women the police officers. Men need not apply. So they, they just had a whole female police force and they found that it really helped with their corruption in that police force. So I think there is evidence both on the ground, real evidence around the world, real life evidence and academic evidence and and suggesting that power does not corrupt women in the same way that it corrupts men. Yeah. And certainly to your point, Lord Acton was writing uh, in the late 19th century, probably didn't have a lot of women in mind at the moment at that time. (laughs) And and so maybe his observations, that was a little bit limited. Um, (laughs) But uh, so it may in fact be true that uh, power makes you more you, makes you act like more like you, uh, that women are just um, naturally prone to be less corruptible? I mean, that's, you know, there is research on empathy and I don't, I, I would, less corruptible, I don't, I mean, it's interesting, the less corruptible thing, is it because women know that if they try to be corrupt, they're much more likely to be charged? Is it that they don't have access to the old network, boys network, and so they don't have many opportunities for a corruption? I mean, we don't know whether that's chicken and egg. And likewise, on the studies with empathy, which there have been multiple studies showing that women leaders are more empathetic than male leaders. Is that social science? Is that society or is that biology? I, I, we don't know. We, we, the, 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 the data and the science is not there. We looked for it, but we don't know whether women are more empathetic because centuries of conditioning have told us to be more empathetic and we are rewarded when we are empathetic in a way that men have not been, or that there is some gene that predisposes us to empathy. Um, that, science hasn't been proven yet. Well, let's talk a little bit more about empathy then, because we talk about um, partisanship uh, on the show a lot and how empathy can be crucial to understanding, uh, you know, the people with whom we disagree are still people, especially in venues like social media, where the humanity of the other is abstracted away uh, on a screen. And so what do we know about the relationship between having power and practicing empathy? What can we say? I mean, I would, I would say that, I mean, if you went go back to St. Marshall's view of power, that power without empathy, and I think this is increasingly seen as the case, and maybe some leaders are talking about vulnerability in ways that's a bit, you know, 
glib or pro forma or self-serving and they don't really mean it. But I think the degree to which Performative, maybe. Performative, yeah. The degree to which people are now looking at empathy as a as a leadership quality, even compared to right. I mean, when you were doing these, looking at this ten years ago, I don't think you'd have heard this as much. I mean, I think now people really are thinking that empathy and vulnerability and and uh, all of those qualities make for better leaders. Uh, I think. Cut that, Brene Brown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that I think that uh, that argument has has pretty much been won. And, you know, maybe we have to drag some kind of Neanderthals into the, into the kind of new zeitgeist. But I mean, just, you know, looking at all the data that there is on diverse groups make for better business decisions. I mean, the, you know, the algorithms have been done on this. Um, and I, I, that must include more empathy because you, you just have to be open to other people's perspective and experiences. Let's talk about home life. Uh, and impacting power. One of the things I found um, interesting was about how people lie about their incomes when the woman is married. Uh, woman in, a woman married in a heterosexual marriage um, uh, earns more. It wasn't just men inflating their earnings. The wives inflated their husband's earnings as well. Do you want to explain that example and what you see driving that? Yeah. I mean, we we really did not expect to get into marriages. We do, you know, politics and economics and leadership. We had not touched marriages before. We didn't expect to go there, but it became clear pretty early on in our research that we were going to have to look at this because women will never really get power outside of the home unless we do something about what's going on inside relationships. Um, and, and it is between men and women because that seems to be where the gender gender kind of biases and stereotypes and blockages all are. I mean, you know, kind of extraordinary things like, I remember having a conversation very recently since the book came out with a woman who runs the UN's uh, Women and Girls Program. And she said, we were on a panel together talking about uh, women in tech, actually. And halfway through, she suddenly said, you know, there's one word we haven't mentioned. And unless we talk about this word, nothing is going to change for women in leadership. And the word is care. And that we we just are still not addressing the degree to which women around the world are burdened with the overwhelming majority of the care inside homes. And, you know, a man with a job in the United States does less housework than a woman with a full-time job. I mean, you know, we've, we're good at lots of things, but we haven't figured out how to put 36 hours into a 24-hour day. So until we kind of redistribute some of that, and whether it's the emotional label, the cognitive labor, all of the labor that goes into it, we're not going to get there. So the the study, I remember coming across this study and, you know, when I, I don't know if you've done kind of research for books like this, but when you come across a great piece of research and you kind of feel like you've hit gold and I came across this piece of research and it was that a woman who's a statistician with a st census bureau had found that in couples where the wife earns more than the husband, which is about a third and growing of all American couples. So it's not, it's not a tiny proportion. It's actually, it's getting towards, you know, a third or half. In couples where the wife earns more than the husband, they lie about it on the census form. Both the husband and the wife will lie to make the husband's salary look bigger and the wife's salary look smaller. And I, uh, when I remember coming across this, thinking, what the heck is going on here? And actually then I thought about it and I thought, you know what? It doesn't surprise me. There's such a desire to protect this kind of old image, you know, that's been handed down for us for years of what a man does and what a woman does, that it's sort of, it's, it's, 
at first I thought, well, they're just protecting the guy's ego. You know, they're just making him feel better because it's embarrassing or something that your wife earns more than you do. But actually it's much more profound than that. It's really about men and the kind of box that men are in. And I think one of the things that really most surprised us about all of the research we did was coming to the conclusion that men are in a very narrow lane. And wouldn't this whole reorganizing of what power is and who has access to it and who does what and what we value, what we all value, wouldn't actually that benefit men almost as much, if not more than women? I think that is so beautiful and so right. Because when I read that bit, I saw two things at the same time. One, how most people, many readers were going to read that as being protecting the male ego. And also, I thought about it as almost an act of tenderness on the, on the woman's part um, because of how sensitive uh, the man is because of societal expectations, right? I, just, I saw it in two, two different ways at once. And the sense that men are limited, um, I, th- I, I, think it's, I think it's a very tender way of interpreting the, um, the, the research. And I, uh, I thought it was unexpected, too. Quite unexpected. Yeah, because look, I mean, there's some of this research that drives me crazy. I mean, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, just pick up the freaking vacuum cleaner. I mean, it's not that hard. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. seriously, I mean, you know, you can't do the laundry. You can't figure out that we need more laundry detergent. I mean, yeah, there's something I want to pull my hair out. But on a much bigger scale, there are, you know, women's, think about women's options, socially acceptable options. We can work full-time. We can work part-time. We can be full-time mothers and, and society is quite happy with all of that. For men, really, you've got to be the breadwinner. I mean, that we spoke to, we interviewed one guy who said to us that he'd quit his job um, and his wife became the primary breadwinner. And he went around with this voice in his head that said, I felt like I had failed at the one thing I was meant to succeed at. How incredibly sad is that? I mean, that he he kind of felt this was the one thing he was meant to succeed at was earning an income, was being the breadwinner. I mean, that's talk about limited, limited options. Yeah, limited options. I also was thinking about you know for myself as I was reading this, gay relationships do not function in this way, and there is always a it, it everything is on the table for uh, some kind of negotiation, conversation, communication about who's going to do what, who's going to pay the bills. Who's go- it's all on the table in a way that isn't available to uh, straight men in heterosexual marriages. It's, um, it's not a thing that's challenged or, or even put, on, put up for review. So that's, I mean, it's really interesting because Claire actually, who um, had been married to a man, and then literally as we were writing this book, their marriage ended and she's now living with a woman. And so she brought a lot of her own perspective to this and how what the difference was between being in a different sex marriage and in a same-sex relationship in terms of kind of chores. And she said, it's just, you know, it's gone. Like who does the dishwasher and the laundry and the, and the trash? I mean, there's no like, well, you should do the trash because you're the guy. There wasn't a guy. So she said that was, it was a real revelation to her. And we, we had a kind of real, a, a, an in real time, exper- you know, social experiment going on in our own writing partnership. One thing we did find, and this was interesting research, is that in same-sex couples, as you say, there's much less gendered expectation of who does what. But what does seem to happen is that particularly in high-income, high-educated, which is a lot of same-sex couples who have children, 
some of the gendered, some of the kind of differences in roles creeps back in again. And that gets to another thing that we write about in the book, which is greedy work. That whether you are a gay couple or a straight couple, the current demands of the work environment, particularly here in the United States compared to many European countries, are so onerous that it's just not possible to maintain that equilibrium. And that I remember reading this headline, and it was particularly related to women, which was that women did everything right and then greedy work got in the way. And we can't. We, we have to address that too. We have to address the way we work. If we want this new model to succeed, if we want to be able to keep all of those other things we value in our lives, we've got to address the way we work because it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's too hard to do that. And, not produ- and we all know it's, how many more studies do we have to read saying, actually working 60 hours a week, you may as well be sitting on the sofa watching television because you are not being productive. We, we don't need another study like that. And actually your productivity will go up if you work less. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got all of this data. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, uh, this is probably, you know, 18 different other conversations, not the least of which is the way we measure growth in our, in our economy, right? Uh, uh, not, not the growth is bad, but the way we measure it, this um, expectation that every single quarter there will be um, higher numbers. Uh, it's, yeah. We, op- we optimize for short-term growth as opposed to um, stability and longevity in our, in our business models. And I think that causes a lot of the... Uh, we do that in our politics too, by the way. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about moving forward and, and think about wrapping up. But before we get into this, I will say, you know, at the end of every chapter, there are uh, your power code segments with prompts for readers to think about how they can implement what you discuss. This isn't all um, abstract. This is very uh, useful uh, information. And you've got some really good uh, ways of putting it into action. What are some of the steps listeners can take um, if they are, say, someone who recognizes what power can do, but they're apprehensive about gaining power? If they are leaders in organizations, how can they rethink how they're approaching their conversations around diversity, for example? Um, How can partners start having these conversations about their home life and how it impacts attaining power? What would you leave people in, in, in these different sort of contexts? before we go? Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, we took the research and then made it applicable and and super practical. So we do drill down in every chapter into go, this is what the big picture is. And this is what you can do right now. And I wish I could say there's one silver bullet. If you did this one thing, you can change power. We actually came to the conclusion that everyone can act every day as what we call an everyday disruptor. And there are things we can all do to change the organizations we work in, the marriages and relationships that we operate in, and the way we give people access to power if we already have it and the way we aspire to power and aspire to use power if we don't. Um, I mean, one of them is just noticing that there isn't one size fits all. I mean, that it's realizing that people do wield power differently and that it doesn't always have to be this zero-sum game, domineering, hierarchical way of using power. So that might sound wishy-washy, but actually the scientists that we spoke to said that noticing can have a already quite a powerful impact on your brain. Um, we can change meeting cultures. Um, we can change work cultures. We can make sure that the words we use when we hire people, when we give people performance reviews, that we're not playing into stereotypes. Um, you know, if you hear somebody who is being speak- spoken over at a meeting, whether it is, you know, a woman, a person of color, somebody who traditionally has been outside of power structures, let him finish. Let her finish. Let me finish. Very simple, very clear, not whiny, straightforward 
amazingly impactful, especially when used in the moment. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, you've got a big job and there are things, and what I love about the science is there are things you can do actually to prime your own brain for power. You're going into a, an important job interview, um, pay raise discussion. Uh, you can remember a time when you had some power over a situation, spend 10, 15 minutes thinking about that time, and then five minutes with a pen not with your phone or your computer with a pen and paper, because scientists say that has much more of an impact on your brain, write down that experience and how it made you feel. And, and they've actually found that people going for job interviews had a higher rate of getting those jobs um, that they were going for because they had primed their brain for power. It, it, it's not a long-term fix. This is lasts, you know, a few days, possibly a week or two, but it'll get you through that job interview. I think the most important, and, and then in the home situation, I mean, there's there's fun kind of super practical stuff. First of all, you know, do the numbers between you and your partner, recognize, you know, who's doing more of what. And and don't just count the fact that you cook the dinner, it's the planning of the dinner, it's the shopping for the dinner, it's the who doesn't like fish, who does like fish, all of that kind of emotional cognitive labor that goes on. One piece of great advice we had from a social scientist in this field that they have found is effective is if you feel that you're in that kind of struggle over, I do so much more, hand over a whole department, like hand over the laundry. The whole thing, like buying the detergent, planning when to do the laundry, realizing that no one has any clothes. And if you know, if there are dirty sheets for a few days or your kids have dirtier clothes or they're not folded properly, you've got to let it go because that is the price you're going to pay for redistribution of power. So there are lots of kind of like little, and, it, and it, I think all of these may sound small, but they're actually, if we all do some of these things, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. We each have a role to play in placing one of those pieces in the jigsaw puzzle. And the little things you do have an impact. The way you hire people, the way you promote people, are you promoting women based on some outdated category of what a leader should look like, charismatic, assertive, authoritative, the kinds of words that men do better at than women in leadership skills tests? Are you assuming that a woman has to go and do four years overseas running the Hong Kong office when that's just not possible? Is there a workaround with that? It's, it's, it's little, and they all sound kind of mundane and small in themselves. Together, they would be incredible in changing our understanding of power and the way our organizations value power and how we wield it. The Power Code. More joy less ego, maximum impact for women and everyone. Katty Kay, thank you for being here. Um, where can people follow your work? So they can follow me on Twitter um, at Katty Kay and on Instagram and go to our website, kayandshipman.com. Uh, and there you will find everything that we're doing. We have a newsletter. You can sign up for that on our website as well. Terrific. Is there an audiobook, by the way? I didn't look. There is a, there is an audiobook. Yep, absolutely. We uh okay. and we we have all of our own stories in there, which we've also read out for people and we have, you know, embarrassed ourselves quite sufficiently in the book with our all our candid power stories and we're quite open to doing that. Ron, you started by asking me what a successful conversation would look like and it, I said to you I wanted to have an engaging, fun conversation that was thoughtful and you've delivered. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's high praise coming from you. I appreciate it, Kevin. Come back anytime. Love to. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.